Welcome to Reclaiming the Faith with Phil Baker, a podcast with a mission to reveal what the earliest Christians believed about the core issues facing us today. You can find links to all of Phil's resources at philsbaker.com. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and take a moment to share this podcast with your friends. Now, here's Phil. Hey, y'all. Today in episode 130, I was blessed to interview author Charles Cooper about the wrath of God. Charles does an incredible job describing the many ways we see God's wrath in both the Old and New Testaments, as well as giving us a lot to chew on for the times to come. Go check out Charles's book, The Elect and the Great Tribulation, on Amazon. There's a link to it in the show notes. You can also find a link to Charles's YouTube channel and his podcast, Pre-Wrath Radio Online. So go check that out. Song two for my upcoming album, Dusk and Dawn, is almost finished being mixed and mastered, and you should be able to see lyric videos for that song, The End, and also a song called At Your Feet uh, very soon, and there'll be uh, links to pre-order the album as well when I release those two lyric videos. The album looks like it's going to be released on... September 16th. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Finally, I'm blessed to be a part of Omega Frequency along with BDK. And go check out our Omega Frequency Live YouTube channel to find all of our content there. All right. Well, without any further ado, let's get into my interview with Charles Cooper. Well, uh, Charles Cooper, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today. I mean, I really appreciate you. My privilege. I appreciate you asking. Yes, sir. Well, um, just for folks that don't know you, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and how you had ca- how you came to faith in Jesus? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, Charles Cooper, born and raised in uh, Arkansas. I'm a Razorback fan, man. Nice. Um, Grew up um, south in the 60s, and, of course, back then, everybody went to church. Everybody was a member of the church. At least that was certainly the reputation that people wanted to project. Yeah. My family was no different. We were uh, Methodist, African Methodist Episcopal Church. That's the name of it. And uh, you went to church every Sunday if you were a really good Christian, uh, periodically, if you were less than the best, <laughs> or you were uh, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day. The Christmas. <laughs> yeah, a few others thrown in there for a good measure to make sure you got to heaven just in case. But um, it was um, going to church like that. But we moved when I was uh, like six to another town, which was about seven miles away. And uh, when I started going to school, my best friend became this, whom I didn't know at the time, was the pastor of of the Baptist church. So he started inviting me to go to the Baptist church. We'd been Methodists all our lives. I started going to that Baptist church. And so then I... um, got interested in church again and started watching church on Sunday morning. And back in the 60s on Sunday morning, 
they would have cartoons on, but before you they put the cartoons on, you had to have these these church services. And back then, one of them was James Robinson. He was on, and then Rex Humbart was on, and then the First Baptist Church of uh, you know Little Rock, Arkansas, came on. So I'd have to put up with those <laughs> programs before the really good stuff came on the television. Nice. I watched that for two or three, for at least two years. Um, and one Sunday morning, um, the um, the Rex Humbart program would come on, and back then they were in this big old building in Ohio called the Cathedral of Tomorrow, and his family would sing, and he would preach. And it, it was every, every week it was the same program, different thing. But anyways, um, one Sunday I I realized what I had been hearing. Um, every Sunday, because he preached the gospel, every Sunday gave an invitation for people to believe. And one Sunday morning, when he started, I knew that I wanted to pay the prayer of faith, and I was just waiting for him to get to that part. You had to go through the whole rest of the whole world. So when he got to that part, I, um, I trusted Christ as my personal sin bearer. I realized I needed a Savior that I'd sinned. I think I was eight years old. Yeah. Matter of fact, I knew I was. And... Uh, from professing faith, started then going to church with my friend who was a Baptist uh, and um, ended up joining that church and the rest is, as they say, history. Nice. Well, I got I got introduced to you through uh, Chris White's uh, documentary, The uh, Seven Pre-Trib Problems and the Pre-Trib Rapture, and started checking out your stuff on YouTube, on your YouTube channel, and you have a couple of different podcasts and uh, pre-wrath radio online is one of them, and man, just really like that. I got got one of your books, the uh, great, or sorry, God's elect oh, yeah. and the great tribulation. Been going through that. Uh, I talked about that with my son on the way to the dentist yesterday, so that was pretty cool. It's weird having it's weird having an adult son. Like yeah. <laughs> he's graduate. He just graduated a couple of days ago. It's weird. Oh but, wow. Uh, yeah, but um. So I'm I'm really I'm really digging the pre-wrath stuff. I'm very much into the anti-Nicene writings, and obviously there they hold to that persuasion. And um, so I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about that and about the wrath of God in general. So, what is the wrath of God? Of course, you're talking about an expression of the character of God. In the last 40 years of the of church age, uh, beginning out of the 50s, the, 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 the emphasis of God moved away from his uh, wrath punishment of sinners to God's love. God loves us. He died for us. He wants to give us a new life. He wants to give us for all intent and purposes, pretty much everything we've ever wanted, if we would just believe. Mm. And so um, we've seen, at least I have in my lifetime, I've seen an evolving emphasis on an aspect of the character of God. And for the last 40 years, it's really been on the love of God. Mm. Uh, Before then, there was a little more balance between the the quote-unquote Turn a burn generation, you know. Shit, you gotta either shake, you are gonna bake. Mm. People trying to get uh, people saved. Now, the the wrath of God for 
for most people has has come to be focused as an eschatological thing. That is, in the last days, there's going to be this huge conflagration of problems between the wicked man, they call him Antichrist, or the beast and, and uh, God, and that God is going to win, and then the uh, the winning is expressed through this final blast of the orge of God, wrath of God. Yeah. So it's it's come to be more or less an eschatological thing symbolized in the trumpets and the bowls or seals, trumpets, bowls by some people, um, depending on your view of the book of Revelation. So the wrath of God has been pretty much confined to this final period, which is going to take care of wicked and evil, lock the Antichrist away somewhere, and then eternity is going to proceed with this family of God on the earth or for a thousand years and plus, or forever, just depending on your theology is yeah. that. But uh, the the expression of God's character against sin or that which is opposite for himself uh, evil, wickedness, sinfulness is dealt with by that characteristic of God we call his wrath. And he will blast or let loose his wrath on that which is inconsistent and refuses to come into compliance with his holiness. So demons, Satan, his artillery, humanity, man who won't repent, they get to feel the uh, expression of God's character, which we call wrath. Uh, that side of God, which uh, tends to uh, lock a man away in in a burning cauldron of suffering forever. Yeah. What What are some various ways that the wrath of God is displayed in both the Old and New Testaments? Well, of course, um, in the Old Testament, um, depending on what it is that God is punishing and to what degree he wants to punish, the the greatest expression of his wrath to date has been uh, the flood of Noah. Uh, the wickedness of man became so pervasive that he found uh, one man, wife, and three children with wives, and that's all he saved out of humanity. And he sent the flood on the earth, drowned, killed every man, woman, boy, and girl alive on earth except Noah and his family. And that was in direct response to man's wickedness and refusal to acknowledge God in terms of rights and wrongs. Um, war... Uh, pestilence, um, sending various kinds of uh, painful, harmful, life-taking uh, experiences to man is uh, of a divine or of a supernatural um, nature is considered expressions of God's wrath. Now, God has sown into the fabric of his creation um, certain natural laws that, if violated, have a consequence, and that is a that is said to be an expression of God's wrath. So, God's wrath doesn't always have to be the the fire and brimstone falling from heaven, killing hundreds and millions at one time. 
It can be God's expressing his displeasure at man for his sin or rebellion or refusal to acknowledge God's way. And it can be done to a less uh, degree that doesn't involve killing or taking a life, uh, but punishing in some lesser way up to, of course, taking one's life. So many, many different expressions of the wrath of God. Having Living a life that can not achieve pleasure, success, and happiness because of God's unwillingness to allow it is said to be an expression of God's wrath. So uh, you shouldn't be, we shouldn't think of God's wrath as only powerful manifestations of the supernatural uh, utilization of death by God, because it doesn't have to be, yet it would be categorized as part of God's wrath. That's awesome. I think you were hitting on a little bit of Romans 1 there for, for a bit. Correct. Yeah, Correct. yeah absolutely. That's, that's great. Um, so passages like Deuteronomy 9 appear to show God's wrath being poured out on both people outside and inside the covenantal relationship with him. Uh, so what are some similarities and differences in these expressions of wrath? Yeah. Well, first, um, realize that all of humanity, every man, woman, boy, and girl, is in covenant relationship with God through the Noahic covenant. God's covenant with Noah as a result of the flood had several pillars of primacy that all men, whether you acknowledge God or not, yeah. uh, you are called to obey now, the covenant in terms of living on a daily life basis with God seemed to what we call the Mosaic Covenant uh, with a people that God specifically called his own uh, brings another kind of relationship that they were obedient under. So there is a Noadic Covenant under the Noadic Covenant that came to be the uh, the expression of the Mosaic Covenant, uh, which has now come under the New Co Covenant, which is with Jesus, which we get to experience benefits of now under that. So God has a way of dealing with those who he specifically reveals himself to, such as Israel, the church, and those whom he may not have personally revealed himself of late, but who still remain under the obligation to not murder, not eat animals with their blood, um, not um, who don't propagate uh, to fill the earth, but who exercise other outcasts, they will experience expressions of God's wrath as well. So you can have expressions of wrath against those who God considers his people because he has revealed himself to them uh, and those who have not seen a personal revelation but yet remain under the obligation to live according to these natural laws that God put in the heart of man. He, he knows that something is right or wrong. Now, he can live unrighteously so long until he becomes callous and, and lack of knowing, but he is still obligated by God. So um, with a pre-wrath position, uh, we have the church, if, if, if I'm stating it correctly, the church is, is still on earth during the ministry of the two witnesses. 
Um, and I, this causes some people that are more from a pre-trib um, viewpoint a little bit of trouble because it seems like the two witnesses are um, messengers of God's wrath in a sense. So um, how do you view the ministry of the two witnesses in Revelation 11, and do you see them as messengers of God's wrath? Uh, in a limited sense, um, now, I tend to take Scripture. I take Scripture as close to face value as it can be taken and not move into the arena of the absurd. The, the text says they are prophets. They prophesy yeah. is the number one job. And as prophets in the tradition of the Old Testament, they, of course, had the power to demonstrate the sovereign administration of God, the rules that regulate God's conduct with people, his creation, angels, whatever. So the two prophets in the book of Revelation, we call them two witnesses. Um, they are, in fact, prophets, have a job to do, which is to humanity, God's will, in the midst of what will come to be the most rebellious period uh, on the face of the earth in, rep in response to the authority of God. He will be led by what is called the beast, who operating according to the power of Satan, who is in fact set on, uh, basically uh, taking over creation uh, and dethroning God from his rule. And during this time, they are prophesying, they are specifically, of course, prophesying of God's agenda, even though Satan and his Antichrist are doing everything they can to thwart it, they will be severely limited in what they're able to do. Their agenda is to take over, rule the earth, eradicate it from anything that even resembles God, and set up their own theocracy, uh, satocracy, I guess you can call it, on the earth. They won't succeed because every event that they do has already been predicted, and God is going to keep humanity aware of what he said, and he will limit their ability to the extent that they want. Satan is not, when you read the Bible and you read about the events and what it says about Satan and Antichrist, understand they don't agree with that calendar. They don't agree with that agenda. They don't agree that those things and only those things happen. They are not in compliance. They are seeking to thwart, to, to go a totally different way. The problem is they're not being allowed to. They would if they could. And one of their frustrations on the earth during the three and a half years is going to be these two prophets who can call down fire from heaven, they can do all kinds of things that thwart the fullest expression of his wrath that he wants to give, say, his Antichrist. They're not going to be successful, and it's because the two witnesses are going to be extremely effective in thwarting his program, particularly after he desecrates uh, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, or the holy place 
that would be designated as the throne of God on earth. This might be, if you don't mind me uh, asking a follow-up. Um, so in, in conversation with, uh, with one of my buddies on this, who's, who's pre-trib, we were talking about the, the ministry time of the two witnesses and um, the day of the Lord. And uh, uh, he's struggling with how Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 that people, there'll be an atmosphere of peace and safety um, at the initiation of the day of the Lord. People will be saying, you know, that, that kind of deal. And uh, my response to that, just kind of off the top of my head, was perhaps that's because, or Paul citing the, the period of the three-day window when the two witnesses or the two prophets have been killed and the people are celebrating that now things have gotten a lot better um, during that time that happens, you know, right before the seventh uh, trumpet blasts. Right. So I don't know, how would you respond to, to that contention from my buddy? Um, and he's basically pushing it back against, you know, the church being around during the, um, the wrath of, or at least part of the, uh, the tribulation period. Yeah. That's where you have to pay extremely close attention to the details of the text because it sets the parameters for you. Um, I believe that Thessalonians second sets parameters that will not allow you, number one, to take the event of the day of the Lord down to the last uh, three or four days or the first two or three days of the 30 days that comes result of the 70th week. You can't take it down that far. It has to occur before then because the day of the Lord starts before then. And according to Paul, the exclamatory statements, peace and safety, occur before the day of the Lord is initiated. That requires backing that up. Now, some people try to back it up too far. I believe you can back that up somewhere in the second half. I don't know precisely where because we don't have that kind of definition. But the text says clearly, unmistakably, they will say peace and safety. The they refers to those who are in opposition to us, we. So Paul is making a very clear distinction between we, himself included, as the believers, the one who are receiving some very negative consequences, and the they who seems to be the ones who are initiating it. And he says prior to the beginning of the day of the Lord, that they will be saying peace and safety. Now, this Antichrist is going to have some success in his program as God allows it. He is going to kill lots of believers. There are going to be lots of them according to the seal, the fifth seal. So if that is true, then it he, there probably will be quite a bit of looking like success because God is limiting his efforts, but he is not eliminating it. And the unbelievers, as they see it, wow, they're, they're getting to a tremendous amount. Christians are not going to be able to resist. They're not going, many of them are dying, hiding. Uh, they are out of the light and are being killed. They're being killed at such a rate that it looks like they're, they're going to have success. I mean, that's how successful it's going to look. 
from their vantage point. That's why they are saying uh, peace and safety, because that's exactly what Antichrist is promising, particularly if they will come onto his army and become on his side. But it is not saying, it certainly is the we, Paul, is not saying we are saying peace and safety, because we're not. We're the one dying. We're the one that's suffering. We're the ones who are being attacked and uh, seeking to be eradicated. So by paying attention to the textual details, it severely limits who is saying peace and safety. It's unbelievers, those who are, in fact, part of this onslaught. They are having success. They look good, looking good. It looks like they're going to have ultimately succeed they don't believe the word of God anyway. And secondly, Satan is able to delude them, and there is a strong spirit of delusion on them that they actually believe the, as they say, their eyes are lying. But they will believe what they think they are saying, but it will not be true. So I think if your friend, you know, it depends on your hermeneutic. Um, you have to, your hermeneutic has to be great enough to cover. The distinctives, and if you don't make that distinction between the we and the they and who is in each audience and what's going on at that particular time in the sequence, then it's very easy for you to be confused and draw a different conclusion. That's a really interesting nuance that you're, you're giving. That's It's the people, and correct me if I'm wrong, trying to re- restate a little bit of what you said, um, that the people who are following the Antichrist are basically saying, by following him, we have peace and safety. Is that absolutely? Yeah. So that seems very similar to what uh, Antiochus was promising Jews, basically, if they would like reverse their circumcision in the in the Maccabean writings, right? If they would come over to the uh, the Hellenistic side, you you will have peace. You'll have safety. You know, you may even have some uh, financial benefit um, yeah. from from coming over to this side. Would you vibe with that? Yeah, and see, when they say peace and safety, now what what are they talking about? If you come into the army of Antichrist, or you become part of his fellowship, you have peace and safety. No one is attacking you. No one is killing you. It's the way you get out of being attacked. It's the way you become free from death. It's the way that you no longer have to worry about not having anything to eat. I mean, he's promising that if you just come to my side, I'll I'll be your protection and I'll feed you and you can eat and do all these things and no one is going to be killing you. In fact, you're going to become part of the killing machine of those who are still resisting. So if you understand the, the limited nuance when he's giving, there, it's very clear that these are people who are no longer under the attack of the enemy, but in fact become part of the attacking enemy. For the believers, they're not saying peace and safety, but for the uh, unbelievers, it is because they've joined his army. That's cool. Um, so you've obviously been been hitting on some of this stuff already, but um, how would you explain the church going through the vast majority of the eschatological tribulation period, yet not experiencing God's wrath. Yeah, well, there again, it, you have to define what is the expression of the wrath of God. Now, Paul seems to draw a distinction, as I said at the very beginning, 
God's wrath can be expressed in different ways and to different extents. But Paul, by using orge, the eschatological wrath, he is talking about a specific period, a specific time, and a specific expression, in my opinion. And it seemed to me that the only qualifying um, expression that that could refer to uh, is the actual, which I limit to trumpet and bowls, which the trumpet and the bowls are an expression of God's eschatological wrath defined exclusively to uh, the day of the Lord. It is the day of the Lord that believers have been promised not to experience, which is a very specific expression of the wrath of God. It is not saying that belief won't be judged and deemed faithful or faithful with consequences. It is not saying that believers will not experience the wrath of Satan, which is going to be quite pronounced at that time. Text doesn't say that either. So if you if you limit the text to what it intended, then the day of the Lord is what man believers have been promised to not experience. And in the pre-wrath view, we believe that the uh, trumpet judgment begin, or in fact, the first expressions of the eschatological day of the Lord. And at that point, the evacuation of the church uh, from the earth has occurred. Well, yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this interview today, and I would love to be able to follow up more with you uh, at another time if you're open to that. Um, Absolutely. I really enjoyed your uh, your teaching on YouTube, the living out pre-wrath during lawlessness, because it's so important that we move away from just the academic side to the personal side, like what people are actually going to be going through, how we're going to respond. I love how you were talking about how the the Western church is basically soft because I feel very so- soft. <laughs> like I, the, the most persecution I feel like I've gone through is like, you know, being threatened with being fired, you know, if, if I held right. to my convictions. And that's pretty low level persecution. Right. Like I don't feel ready to go through right. it. Um, so... With that in mind, like, do you have any final words, any advice for folks who are listening to help them endure to the end with Jesus? Um, you know, I could, I, in, in, um, in my book uh, on responding to the um, tribulation, fight, fight of faith, I talk about that is your faith that will sustain you, but people, of course, totally go to the end of the equation and they just want to stay alive. They just don't want to f- suffer any physical discomfort. They don't want their fingernails pulled out or, you know, their their toenails uh, chipped off. They, they simply are looking more at the physiological expression of the wrath of the evil one, and they just don't want to experience that. They don't want to be killed in the streets, uh, you know, just taking shot dead in the in the street with no chance. 
they don't under they don't really appreciate the dynamics of God's people being the object of unlimited uh, evil. And as Westerners, we we this last generation, I mean, we got two hundred years of freedom from persecution in mass. Now, there's been some limited on a limited basis, but term, just in terms of the whole society being subjected, we we haven't experienced that. And I can I can say to you, ladies and gentlemen, um, nothing that I can say is really going to help you mentally be ready because you never had to be ready for anything like that. Mm-hmm. The first look of something like that is going to be overwhelming for you. I, I simply, um, as members of my own family, um, I leave them to the sovereignty of God. God is sovereignly able to achieve his success. He has already told us uh, there are going to be martyrs, many of them. In fact, he said a number as to how many will pay the ultimate price of giving their lives. Many will be put in prison. Many of them will be waiting execution. It just won't happen because he can't kill them fast enough. My concern now, though, even though I understand as Westerners, we fixate on uh, the possibility of experiencing that final phase of human history, as we call the tribulation. But that's really not going to be the worst time of your life. Uh, if you happen to be alive on earth at the time. The worst time of your life is actually going to be when you stand at the Bema. That's going to be far more traumatic, and it's going to have far more result than you can imagine. And unfortunately, just as so much of the church is ignorant of what God's final week is going to actually look like, because we've been fed the idea that, hey, I'm gone, I'm not going to be here, it's not problem. I'm not going to worry about it. I don't even have to think about it. I'm out of here. Um, we have not been taught that there's going to be negative consequences for unfaithfulness. And it's amazing how deceived so many church people are as to the doctrine, thinking that they are faithful, that their lives are going to meet with absolute approval by God. They, they are so deceived because the standard of what holiness is has been lowered so much uh, in the Western church that people think that if they go to church a couple times a month, give some money, they don't drink, dip, or chew, they've cut out, you know, any uh, overt expressions of uh, ungodliness that, you know, they're going to be found in pretty good shape with God. Mm-hmm. I, I can only tell you, friend, you're going to be in quite a surprise. my head low and I walked that narrow road as mighty men roamed who devoured both house and home but I won't forget that day you made yourself known you said the end has come for me tied to me with your family. You're the ark I run to 
coach just preached on 